But if you're, if you're a guest with us today, welcome. We're excited that you joined this great group of dysfunctional people who all love each other. Uh, but if you don't know, uh, if you're new here, if this is your first time, uh, as a church, we've been going through our year-long series, 52 Weeks Know the Bible, where we're going through the entire Bible chronologically, starting from Genesis and ending all the way in Revelation. And so this week, our year-long series leads us to, finally, the life of David. Uh, which is pretty interesting. So significantly, we're kind of at a time now where David has been declared king, but he's not actually been formally crowned king yet. So he's in a position where he's actually running from the current king at the time, King Saul, and, and he's, he's in kind of one of these dilemmas, and we're going we're gonna to get to the story more in a bit. Uh, but we're also going to be looking at a passage in Psalms as well. Now, if you're familiar with the way that the Bible is traditionally put together, you might be thinking, wait a second, I don't understand. You said First Samuel, Psalms, and also going through the Bible chronologically. How does that work? Aren't there like nine to ten books in between First Samuel and Psalms? Yes, there are. That's a good observation. But, but this is the way that the chronological Bible is written. It, it's cool that it shows you that there's chapters in the book of Psalms that were actually written during the same time as the book of First Samuel. So while First Samuel is going along in its narrative, there's also bits and pieces of the Psalms that are written into it at the same time. So we can see what was going on in people's hearts as we see what was going on in history about it. So what the psalm that we're going to be looking at today in particular is Psalm 57, which is more or less a journal entry of what David was going through, kind of his, his prayers, his cries, his pleas to God while he was running from King Saul. So when he wrote Psalm 57, he was perhaps at the most intense, most pressurized point that he's ever been to been through in his whole life up to this point. So before we can really see what's going on in Psalm 57, we're going to read a little bit of 1 Samuel 24, which is the context. So we're going to see 1 Samuel 24, that's kind of like the circumstances pressing in upon David from the outside. And then we're going to look at Psalm 57, which is more of how those circumstances are affecting David from the inside. All right, so go ahead and start turning your Bibles to Psalm, or sorry, 1 Samuel 24 right now. 1 Samuel 24. And while you're doing that, let me set the stage with a familiar story that might help you understand a little bit what's going on in this passage. So I, I know it's probably been a while for many of us here, but uh, you remember the show on, on TV, Looney Tunes, right? Everyone loves Looney Tunes. Two of the most iconic characters were Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny. Okay, maybe the greatest Looney Tunes rivals of all time. Second only, of course, to MJ and the Monstars because he's the goat. That's not a question. Uh, but if you're not familiar with Looney Tunes, or it's, it's been a while, let me give you a quick refresher. So Elmer Fudd is the de facto arch nemesis of Bugs Bunny. He has like this tall barrel hat with a double barrel gun. And he's, he's a rather dopey character who really has any unlikely chance of defeating Bugs Bunny after all. That's kind of what makes it tragically comedic. Uh, but what's funny is that every time he tries to catch Bugs Bunny, he always ends up falling into his own traps. His own like, ways that he wants to get Bugs Bunny, he ends up falling into himself. Uh, he always gets outsmarted by the smarter rabbit. Now, Bugs Bunny, on the other hand, is your more likable character, unlike Elmer Fudd. He's upbeat, he's witty, he's talented. He, he's more, you know, your own, uh, uh, your, your protagonist in the play. Uh, his, his catchphrase, if you don't know this, you need to watch it again. His catchphrase is, Air, what's up, Doc? And while he's chewing on a, a carrot, right? You've seen that? Of course he's chewing on a carrot because he is, after all, gluten-free. I'm just kidding, because he's a rabbit. Maybe he's gluten. I mean, rabbits might be gluten free. I don't know. Uh, but that is, in a nutshell, essentially what's going on here in the story. So Elmer Fudd is always chasing Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny is always the one outsmarting Elmer Fudd. That's what's happening essentially in First Samuel twenty-four. 
in the sense that King Saul is a figure displayed in this story, a lot like Elmer Fudd. He's angry, he's jealous, he's on the hunt, his plans keep overturning on himself. David, on the other hand, fits the character line of more of, of Bugs Bunny in the sense that he's more likable, people like him more, he's the one being hunted, and the audience is more pro-David. That's kind of the, 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 the narrative that we're running into here. So unlike, though, Bugs Bunny, David is actually, his struggle here is not fictional, it's real. His, his struggle is not lighthearted, it's, it's heavy-hearted. His enemy was not unintimidating like Elmer Fudd. His enemy, King Saul, was, was a real threat. He was being hunted by him and thousands of soldiers. Okay, so that's the story that we're coming up to in 1 Samuel 24. And it leads up into a season, now if you've been following along in our Bible study so far, of another valley that David has been going through. David's life throughout this book so far has been one big story of a roller coaster. Uh, if you've started at the beginning of 1 Samuel, you'll know that he's the youngest brother, so he's always getting all the dirty work. He's always getting um, neglected. No one really cares about him. They forget about him all the time. That would certainly be a low in his life, right? But then he becomes crowned king of the whole, of the whole nation. Okay, that's, that's a pretty high high from a low low. But then after he gets declared king, he's actually sent back into the pasture for I don't know how many more years to just deal with anonymity and forgetfulness and parents and brothers who are a little bit jealous of him. That would be a low. Well, then he has a big moment where he gets out of the pasture and he defeats Goliath and he becomes this national hero. Uh, everyone loves him. King Saul gives him his daughter in marriage. He gets a position in the palace. So that, that's certainly a big high, right? Well, because King Saul is an egomaniac and, and can't stand anyone has more attention and love than he is getting, he becomes insanely jealous of, of David and tries to kill him. He gives his daughter in marriage to someone else and now is using the national media of Israel to just slander his reputation altogether. That would be a low. And now he's being hunted in the wilderness. Here we are in 1 Samuel 24. So first one, hope you've made it there by now. Here's how it starts. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told to him saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. That sounds like it's in Star Wars and it might be. Verse two, then Saul took 3000 men from all of Israel and sought to take David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. En Gedi was essentially uh, the steep mountain slope, right? Full of cracks and crevices and, previs- and uh, precipices and caves. So as Saul's army is trying to find David and, and David's friends, they're trying to find him on this slope. It, it's almost like they're playing this massive game of, of human whack-a-mole. Except, you know, this is not your traditional whack-a-mole board of 16 different options. It's like a human life scaled version of, of, of like a thousand different options to try to find David in one of these holes. So the, they're trying to find David. He's the mole in one of these holes, which is the cave. They're trying to figure out where he is. So verse 3 so he, King Saul, came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. Attend to his needs. What does that mean, you might ask? Well, the, some of your Bible translations might be a little bit polite, depending on whichever one you're reading. Some of the versions of the Bible might say that he was relieving himself. Uh, essentially, he was just hopping on the pot. He was going to the bathroom himself. So this is how it keeps going. Then the men of David, so the guys who were with David, said... This is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, David, that you may do to him as you please. In other words, all David's buddies are like, David, this is your chance, okay? Are are you kidding me? Look how easy this is. Out of all the caves in this massive mountain that he could have just walked into to find you, he's walking into yours to take uh, a, a, a bathroom stop. 
He couldn't be more vulnerable right now. Go take him out. He's hunting your life. Take him out. The crown is yours. The throne is yours. This will all be fine. Doesn't it look like God is like leading him into your hands? He's the one in the wrong. You're the one in the right. So just take care of business. That's what David's friends are essentially saying here. So question. Let's just make this a little bit more personal. Have you ever been through something like that yourself? Has something like this happened where, where a circumstance comes along and you're like, this has got to be God, right? Like coincidence? I think not. And nevertheless, there's something deep down in you that you're like, ah, this makes me feel a little bit hesitant to, 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 act, to actually like see this through. So for example, maybe it's that you've been single for a while and then this guy finally starts digging you and you're like, oh man, like he's awesome. He's a new guy at work. We click really well. We have great chemistry, but maybe there's like some, some red flags there, areas of hesitation there spiritually. You're like, ah, whatever. I'll roll my eyes and just keep, keep going forward with this. But deep down, you might know this might be an issue. Or maybe, it, maybe it's that you've been underpaid for a while, and there has been no promotion, no opportunity at work, and you're trying to make some more money, and, there, and an opportunity comes along where you can make more money, but it might not be fully approved by your boss. Well, you didn't say I couldn't do it, but, well, I don't know how this would affect other people. And you're like, but God, like, you want me to like, give more money to the church, right? Now, this is, is this the opportunity that you're giving me to give more money? You're like, you try justifying it by like, doing spiritual things with your money. You know what I mean? Or, or maybe, that it's been, maybe it's that you've been hurt by someone pretty badly. And you've been waiting for the right opportunity to get them back, right? You're like, you're like a panther on the prowl. You're like waiting for the right moment to pounce and get them back for how they've treated you. And you've been going through this scenario in your head over and over and over again. You know what I'm talking about. We've all done this. But, and you're like, God, I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to do anything wrong. I'm not going to do anything that I shouldn't do. But you know that like, okay, maybe if it's not technically gossip, or maybe you're not technically doing anything that's wrong, you know deep down what you're doing. Okay? Or maybe it is that you've wanted to move and get a new house. Okay? And you can't afford one. Financially, you just can't. But one day you run into traffic, you take a short, you know, a shortcut, you end up in this neighborhood, and then you just happen upon this glamorous, beautiful house that you're like, wow, this is my dream house. And it's on a street that's my last name. Certainly this is like God, right? Like no coincidence, right? But even though you know you can't afford that house. But, but it's gotten, you know, this is, this is essentially what's going on here with, with David and Saul. Okay, David has been declared king by God. That wasn't like false. It was, it was a done deal. He was declared king. But circumstantially, things weren't like materializing as they probably should have. Or maybe it wasn't on his time frame. Okay? And so, so what happens with, with David is that he's been declared king, but he's been mistreated. He's been ill-reported. He's been threatened. He's been on the run. He's had no security. I mean, his whole life has been in shambles, and he's only ever done the right thing the whole time. Okay, that's what's going on. And, and it would look like in this situation that God is giving Saul into David's hands for David to just take care of business. It would look like that. But this is what happens. Verse 4. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. So you see, he's starting to feel some conviction over here. Even though circumstantially it would be really tempting This is what he says, verse 6. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Verse 7 says, So David restrained his servants in these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. So Saul got up from the cave, 
uh, or more, more literally, he got up off the pot and he went on his way. In other words, David let Saul go. And David's friends are saying, David, are you, are you kidding me? You, you just, you let him go? Like, this is such a missed opportunity. And we're with you, which means you've, like, threatened our security now, too. <sighs> you should have just taken care of business. And David is saying, no, like, circumstances might be so compelling right now, so tempting right now, but I know what's right. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm not going to force God's hand on this one. Okay, I'm not going to do that. And interestingly, and it's kind of funny, in modern English, we have a phrase that describes what David's friends are telling David to do after all, which is they're just telling David, like, just cut some corners. Like, if the end result is the same, like, why take the long road and you take a shortcut? Right? Just cut some corners. And ironically, David's actually doing that very thing, except not in the way that they think he should be doing it. He does cut the corner here. Okay? Ironically, he, he, he cuts the corner of Saul's robe, proving to his friends the exact opposite. He's not going to cut corners with God. So they're telling him to cut corners with God. He's like, no, I'm not going to cut corners with God. I'm going to cut a corner of Saul's robe. And so by doing so, I'm not going to cut corners with God. And I'm not going to cut corners the way that you think I should cut corners. You tracking with me? Good. This, this is what happens next. Verse 8. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. So David, or excuse me, so, so Saul looked behind him. David stooped down with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Verse 10. Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. Now at this point, all of David's buddies are probably like, uh, not me, your highness, that was uh, that other guy over there. Don't, don't, but back to David. But my eye spared you. I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, look, this is a corner of your robe in my hand. For in it that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. See, you can know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt to take my life. So let the Lord be judged excuse me, between you and me. Let the, Lord, let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. And then to summarize the entire process, what happens? Saul's heart is softened and his ego is deflated. He admits that David was in the right. And he affirms that God will give David the throne after him. And they essentially just make a peace treaty and then they depart. That's how it works. Honestly, this is a really incredulous ending to a rather volatile and vengeful story. I don't, I don't, and there's many things going on here. But the main question, the glaring question that it leaves us is, why did David act that way? Like, why, did he, why did he act in that way that he did? And so likewise for us, how can we act that way or what empowers us to act that way and trust to trust God with the, with, with the circumstances that come to us every day that are tempting or, or that are despairing. Where does that come from? Well, we can actually figure this out by looking to the passage in Psalms that I referenced. So if you would go ahead and flip to Psalms 57, Psalm 57 and Psalm 57, we look at what David was going through thinking before this episode happened, right before this episode happened. So where does he find the power to resist temptation? Where does he find the power to trust God? Where does he find the power to not take matters into his own hands? That's what we see here in Psalm 57. It's that journal entry, remember, of David before Saul comes into the cave himself. So here it is, Psalm 57, if you're there. Verse 1. This is what David says, or what he's writing in his journal. He says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. 
He shall sin from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. Do these verses just resonate with you at all? Just like right off the bat? Like, where, where, have you ever been in a place where you've literally been up against the wall? Or you've literally been in a cave, circumstantially, where you feel like all you can do is just look up? Like, there's nothing else you can do but just say, God, please be merciful to me right now. Please, I, don't, I, ha- I can't do anything on my own. Please be merciful. That is what David's going through right now, and we can relate to that all in some ways. And if you haven't yet, you will one day, I, I promise you, because you live in a broken world. That is what's going on. God, be merciful to me. But David's not done here yet, so let's keep going. My soul is among the lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. Verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Ever ever felt like that? Like, Are, are you just thankful for these verses? Let, let's keep going. Verse 6. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit for me. Into the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. This is a case of Elmer Fudd all over again, falling into their own, their own traps. But this is what it says, verse 7. My, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing praise. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches into the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. So what, what happens here? How does David, in only 11 verses, 11 verses, start on the minor note of, God, please be merciful to me. And then ends on the last five verses of the major note of, God, your mercy reaches into the heavens. How does he start with severe petition and then end in singing praise? What happens there? What gives him the power to trust God with his circumstances? What gives us the power to do the same thing as well? Well, the same source of confidence that David accessed is the same source that we can access too. Except what David knew in part, we know in full. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. So you're like, whoa, we didn't even say the name of Jesus in this passage. Where are you getting that? He saw a glimpse of this in this passage, and we know this in full. If you go back to verse 2 through 3, this is where you can see it clearly. I will cry out to God most high who can perform all things for me. In other words, nothing is impossible with God. He shall send from heaven and save me. Okay, does that kind of start resonating a little bit? He reproaches, or sorry, he shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his truth and his mercy. We're able to see where David gets his confidence to trust God from in verse 3. He shall send forth his truth and his mercy. He shall send from heaven and save me. That's the key. David did not have Jesus, okay? But what he did have was a sweet assurance of who God was to him and the promise of the Messiah to come. So what he knew of looking forward, we know of more fully looking backward. It's the same, it's the same hope. So how do you or can you know that God will take care of you in your circumstances? By Jesus Christ. See, that mercy and truth that God sends from heaven to you is Jesus, it is not, it is Jesus Christ. It is not some kind of spiritual file from heaven that he, download, that he uh, downloads into the drop bucks of your Christianity. Like it's some kind of ethereal principle. This is not, that's not what it's talking about. This is a real person who came down and stepped down from heaven to save you. He approached the one who would swallow you up, sin and death, and he became sin and death himself to save you. That is what what David is hoping in in this situation. And so if God sent from heaven to save you when you were an enemy like Saul, then certainly he will take care of you in your smaller circumstances now that you're his son like David. 
That's, that's what David is trusting in. And see, when we were in our cave, okay, of sin and death, see, the, the real caves in life, the real, thing, the real enemies in life are not cancer, are not joblessness, are not singleness, or not financial insecurity. Your biggest cave, your biggest uh, enemy is sin and death. That is something that we have all fallen into. And so when God sent his son, full of mercy and truth, into the cave of our helplessness, he came to save us. Except Jesus would be swallowed up for our sin so that we could go free. He wouldn't cut corners with God. He would follow God entirely and fully in obedience. Living the life that we should have lived, dying in our place, the death that we should have deserved to die. Jesus would make himself vulnerable like to our sin like David did with Saul. Except Jesus would, would receive the blow of the, of, the, of the justice and punishment that we deserve so that we could get the warm-hearted acceptance that, that, that was from God that David and Saul got after that. Does that make sense? This is, this is typology 100% of what the gospel is. Jesus would take our blow so that we could get his warm acceptance of relationship with God. That's good news. And if David knew that God was like that for him, then he knew he could trust God with the smaller circumstances. So even when his circumstances looked like God had abandoned him entirely, and even when his circumstances suggested like God was giving him an easy way out here or taking matters into his own hands, he trusted that God's heart for him, that God, that God, he trusted God's heart for him that he was going to take care of him regardless of what, what happened. He would just leave everything else in his hands. See, that was the gospel, God's heart to him that enabled David to trust God. And see, we can do the same thing knowing who God is to us in Jesus as well. So I want to glean, uh, leave us with three different applications that we can glean from this, from this story. So number one, we're taking notes. Number one, this story teaches us that outcome is God's responsibility. Our responsibility is trust and obedience. Outcome is God's responsibility. Our responsibility is trust and obedience. See, D- David realizes something here that we can all take to the bank. And that he realizes, okay, since I can trust God's heart for me, that means I can therefore trust his hand to me. So even when my circumstances feel turbulent, which they are, no one's diminishing that. And even when they look tempting, which they are, no one's diminishing that. Even when they look tempting or they feel turbulent, I can still trust. And when David was in that pain, that that cave of pain and suffering and agony, it would be hard to trust God in the situation, especially as Saul was hunting him, okay? It'd be hard just in general. But, and don't miss this, I think this is even maybe more practical for us immediately, even when David was in the cave and Saul appeared for the taking, it would have been really hard to trust God by letting Saul go, right? So it's hard to trust God when he's in the cave, but it's even harder to trust God by letting Saul go. Why? Because if David let Saul go, then it would seem that his plight would just kind of continue indefinitely. He would just be in threat always. Is God really like looking out for me here? So when you're under trial yourself, there's two things that are going to happen. There's two main temptations. One is the temptation to despair because of your circumstances. And the second is the temptation to try to control your circumstances so that you don't despair. Does that make sense? You're going to be tempted to despair because of your circumstances, or you're going to be tempted to take matters into your own hands so that you don't despair. In other words, you're going to say something like, God, I don't think you're working in my life. I don't think you're hearing me, so I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. I'm not getting married, so I'm going to be more available sexually. Okay? Maybe I can just try to figure this out myself. Or, or I'm not getting promoted here, so maybe I might just fudge my numbers a little here or there. Well, really, the company owes me back for the time that I was there. No one really took notice, so dot, dot, dot. You tracking with me? Or I'm not getting the justice that I think I deserve, so I'm just going to pay them back myself on my own time in a way that makes me feel better about myself. 
as if that ever works and it makes you feel better anyways. Okay, I, I know those things are all tempting, but what does David do here? What, what does David do? And I think what David does is a really good template for what we ought to think of, what gospel obedience looks like as well. What we see in David's response is the key to how we're supposed to respond to when we're in those situations to despair or to take matters to our own hands. See, David could have killed Saul. It was good that he didn't, all right? He takes it a step further, however, and he actually, remember, he calls out to Saul from the cave. He didn't have to do that. He could have just let Saul go his own way and just kept hiding. He calls out to Saul, exposes himself after the fact, and then bows his face low to the ground before Saul. Like, what are you doing, David? Like, why, why would you ever think that's a good idea? David is taking a huge risk here. He's putting himself out there. He's, he's putting his life, his welfare, his well-being, maybe even putting God's promise of the throne to him at risk by doing what's right. Okay? That is the essence of what obedience looks like. That is what true obedience looks like. It means doing the right thing, putting yourself into circumstantial risk, putting yourself into the category of costs, whatever that might be, putting yourself, nevertheless, into God's hands. That's what faith looks like. That's what obedience looks like. It says, essentially, God, I'll remain single if that's your will. You know I want a spouse. But I'll take the pains of loneliness. I'll take the pains of not doing the popular thing, if that's what it means to get the person or whatever. I'll do those things if the risk is to not have any prospects. If I'm going to do it the right way, I trust you, and, and I believe you're worthy of that in light of what you've done for me. And in light of what you've done for me, I can now trust you with this, and I know that you'll take care of me more than I can take care of me, and I want to see how you provide out of it. Okay? Or number two, it says, God, I'll remain unnoticed at work. I'll remain with a lack of promotion, with no recognition, if that's your will. I guess I'll do that. You know I want a promotion, obviously, but I'll take the pains of no raises if that means continuing to report my numbers honestly, if that means reporting my mileage correctly, if that means reporting my emails rightly. You know what I mean? But if that's what it means to put myself in the category of cost, I'll do that because you're worthy of that in light of what you've done for me. And then because of what you've done for me, I can trust you with how it's all going to play out. I'm just going to continue to do what you've called me to do and, and leave it at that. I'll trust you from that. That's the thing. True obedience might cost you in the short run, but a lack of obedience will cost you more in the long run. That's number one. Out, outcome is God's responsibility. Our responsibility is trust and obedience. That's number one. Number two is this. Number two is God holds you and your circumstance. God holds you and your circumstance, which means everything that's happened has already gone through God's hands. Everything that's already happened has gone, has gone through his hands first. So some of you might hear that as I once did and think, really, like this, like this trial, this hardship, this hand that was dealt to me unfairly, like I did all the right things and this is what I get in return. That's from a God that loves me. That's from a God who apparently could change the situation like that. How would that be so hard for God to do if he really loves me and has the power to do so? And yet, I'm, I'm doing, how is that encouraging to know that it came from God's hands first before it got to you? How is it? Well, I, I get what you're saying. Trust me. And David does too because David did not have a view of the future. He didn't know what was going to happen either, just like us. But the fact is, if it has gone through God's hands first, if he is sovereign, as bad as it might be right now or as it was, 
that means if it's in his hands, it's still in his power, it's still in his love, it's still in his wisdom. The story's not over yet. So you can trust him with that. And it means that your circumstance is not random. It means it's not chaotic. It means you're not a victim. And in some way, it's purposeful right now. It might just be one of those seasons that you look back on and you're amazed. Maybe not, but maybe you will. I think some of us in here can probably attest to that. Maybe God is accomplishing something in your circumstances right now that you can't see, but all he's asking you to do is just to wait and to trust. Just wait and to trust. John Piper, who's a theologian, says it like this. He says, at any moment in your life, at any moment, God is accomplishing 10,000 things, and you might be aware of two or three of them. Maybe. And maybe you think you're seeing part of it, and you're actually not. (laughs) You're not seeing it the right way. But he's accomplishing, nevertheless, 10,000 different things. And usually, it's in the waiting seasons that trusting in God and trusting him and not knowing what's going on, it's usually in those seasons that God is accomplishing his best work in your life because it is causing you to depend on him. And, And this is not... The rule in Scripture. In Scripture, this is this is the this is the this is not sorry. It was it's not the exception. This is the rule in Scripture. You see this all the time. Abraham, for example, called to be a father of a great nation, waited for a child until he was like what a hundred years old. Or Joseph, called to be a king, waited through slavery and prison and mistreatment and uh, a, a false accusation, misunderstanding. Everyone had abandoned him, and then he had the palace. David, called to be a king. Same thing. Herding sheep and being in the pasture for way longer than he ever wanted to be. The Apostle Paul, for example. Do you all know this? He was called by God to be an apostle, which is like varsity level Christian in that time. Okay, He was called to be an apostle. And yet, after he was called to be an apostle, God sent him into the wilderness for 18 years. This is like when Christianity is ripe. Ripe for the taking. There's only like... 11 apostles, 12 apostles. He's like one of the 13. And God's like, wilderness, 18 years. I don't need, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need us. And he knows exactly when the timing's right. And after 18 years of anonymity, Paul came onto the scene and accomplished, God accomplished more through him than any of the other apostles did, at least what we're aware of. God is doing the same thing. Are you sensing a trend here? Like, if you're a Christian, then seasons of waiting and suffering are not atypical. If anything, it is par for the course. Maybe God is preparing you right now for what he has prepared for you. And he can't get you where he's trying to get you to before he prepares you for what he has prepared for you. Does that make sense? It's kind of like a weight room. You need to be fit before you can do what he's called you to do with the muscles that he's given you to do for that task. Or maybe he's using this circumstance right now to wean you off of dependency of the world and to knit your heart closer to his. Because that's what life is all about after all. And finally, you'll be equipped to do what he's called you to do once you have the heart that he's wanted to put in you first. So this truth is clear in the story. Don't obsess over your circumstances. Don't obsess in your circumstances. Rest in the God who is above your circumstances. He can surely turn them on a dime anytime he wants to. And this is what happens here. And see, if there was ever, really ever a time to doubt God's heart for you or for us, By strictly looking at our circumstances, it was the cross, right? It was the cross where everything looked chaotic. Everything looked amiss. The worst thing ever was happening. And yet that's when God was doing his best work. 
So if he did that on the cross for your salvation, then certainly through, his circum- through your circumstance right now, he is weaving redemption and restoration through it. That's what's beautiful about, about how God is using circumstances. We look through the cross, through the lens of the cross, and we can trust. That's what, this, that's what this story is telling us, that we can wait on God. We can trust on him regardless of what we're going through. And, and, and one little final note here. I, I think I, I feel guilty of this the other day. I, I saw a tweet, and I was like, ooh, that hits hard. This, this guy said, waiting on God. This is actually Barnabas Piper who came and spoke at our, our exchange event the last Thursday. He said, waiting on God and waiting on God to give you what you want are completely different things. Waiting on God and waiting on God to give you what you want are completely different things. The former, waiting on God, is trust and it gives you rest. The latter is not trust and it'll keep you up at night. Wait on God, trust in him, put your head on the pillow and sleep. He's got it under control. He has your circumstance under control. That's number two. And number three is this, pray in faith. Pray in faith. Faith not in the what, but in the who. Pray in faith. All through Psalm 57, David does something really interesting here in his prayer and cries to God about his circumstance. And I think that we can apply the same thing too. So, so what does he do? Uh, uh, look, at, look at how he, throughout verse uh, Psalm 57, um, what he does to this. So all through his prayer, whenever he brings up his circumstance, whenever, at any time he brings up his circumstance, he always significantly pairs it with a truth about who God is. Okay, so verse one, look at it. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. David recognizes this calamity. He's not trying to spiritualize it. He's not calling it what it isn't. He's like, this is a calamity. Yet I'm going to recognize, I'm, I'm going I'm to tie it and pair it to a truth of who you are, God. You are my refuge. Verse two, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. In other words, David expresses his pain and his concern, and then he pairs it to a truth of who God is, one who is able to be above those circumstances. You can do all things. This is, this is my pain. You can do all things. He's pairing them side by side. Verse four through five, my soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows. Their, their tongue is a, a sharp sword. But God, be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Once again, David is saying, God, I'm in sharp pain right now. But I want to see you glorified through this. He's, he is merging these two together. And interestingly enough, the rest of Psalms, this, this, this chapter in Psalm, is not petition. It's praise. So how did David's prayer switch from petition to praise like that? How did his circumstance, or in other words, did his circumstance change when he was writing the Psalm? No, he was still in the cave. Nothing had changed. This, his circumstance had not changed when he went from petition to praise. His vision of God did. His vision of, of who God was to him is what changed. That's what led him to praise. His circumstance did not. So David first starts by explaining his great petition, his great concern to God. And then he makes the switch and he starts preaching to his circumstance about how great his God is. And so we need to do the same thing. Some of us, most of us, I'm talking to myself here, I'll spend like... of my prayer being like, God, this is what's going on. God, I'm struggling with this. God, where are you going to come through for me? God, do you understand what's going on? Amen. (laughs) That's that's what I do. But David does something here that's interesting. He actually makes 50% on petition, 50% praise, 50% my circumstance, 50% truth. And he's not allowing himself to listen to himself keep going on repeat. That 
done, that, 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 that record player that just keeps going and going, he stops it and starts preaching to himself. He doesn't let him go insane. We all do this with our circumstances. We just let the circumstance obsess in our mind and just keep going and going and going. And that's when we need to stop and say, no, no, no you've, you've ran your course. God already knows about it. He's already heard about it. I've heard about it enough. My friends have heard about it enough. Now I need to start bringing this to God, and I need to trust in what he says over it. I don't know all the details, but that's what we need to start doing. And so praying in faith means emphasizing the who over the what. Praying in faith means emphasizing the who over the what. It's not a, a, a name it and claim it kind of thing. I'm going to get this job. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to get this girlfriend. Thank you, God. Name it and claim it. We're good to go. There are some churches in the city where that is what you do. I'm not going to say which one. But we all know. <laughs> but to name it and claim it is not about the what. But you need to name and claim your God over the what. That is 100% biblical. Name and claim who he is. Name and claim who he is beyond what you can see. And faith is giving thanks and giving praise to God, affirming who he is when, when your circumstances don't change or before you can see them change. Who knows? It's being so, praying in faith is being so confident in his goodness and in his control that it quenches your worry and it, it cultivates confidence in you. So see, what makes, what makes sense to us, right, is giving thanks to God after he's already changed the circumstance, right? Is praising God after the circumstance has changed. Oh, thank you. We got a girlfriend. Praise you, Lord. Amen. But see, well, that's not praying in faith. That's just thanksgiving. That's just a, a reaction to circumstances. Faith says, God, I trust you. Maybe I don't see what's going on right now, but I don't, I don't understand how your hand is at work in my life right now. But I thank you and I praise you because I know and I can be sure that you love me. And because you gave your son for me, I can trust you with what I'm going through. And I believe that you'll provide for me since I'm your child. And if you gave me your son when I was your enemy, certainly you'll provide for me now. That's what praying in faith means. And it says, I, I trust that you'll take care of me. Amen. You're over my circumstance. Hallelujah. That's what praying in faith looks like. So uh, are you looking for strength today in the here and the now? The only place you will find it is faith in future grace. Are you looking for strength right now? The only place you're going to find that is faith in future grace. A grace is coming. He has already gone before you. Before the what even happens, he's waiting for you tomorrow. So today, have strength knowing that you can have faith in future grace. And it's enough every day that, that where he has you. You're exactly where he needs you to be. You're exactly where he wants you to be. Have faith in future grace. It'll get you through today's sorrows and it will give you perspective for tomorrow's sorrows. Or maybe the lack thereof. I don't know. That's why David could praise before the provision came. That's why David could give thanksgiving before God gave him his giving. Faith in future grace is why we can walk forward in obedience because we can trust that God will provide. Does that make sense? That's why we can put ourselves at risk. That's why we can put ourselves into the category of costs in obedience because we have faith in future grace. We know that it's coming. That's number three. Pray in faith. So I don't, I don't, I don't know where... Many of you are at in your life. I know some, I'm sure some of y'all have things that are going on. All of us do. Maybe you're waiting for something, whatever that waiting is. David was waiting to be king. David was waiting to finally have security. David was waiting to have a home. He was waiting to have friends. He was waiting to finally be in a place where his life wasn't in jeopardy and in threat. He was waiting. And the biggest temptation will always be for us to take matters into our own hands or to despair so that we don't have to. But take it from David, don't cut corners. 
or do cut corners, the right corners, you know what I mean. Don't take corners. And the only, re- the only reason that he could trust God by not cutting corners with God was because he had a view of God who did not cut corners with him, who went to the cross fully. And in the gospel, God gives us a view of that, uh, of who he is to us as well. So, so what can we do in light of these circumstances? We can do those three things that were mentioned. We can, we can trust and obey, leaving the outcome to him. We can be assured that he's holding on to us and our circumstance. And we can pray in faith, being expectant of what he is, to, what he is going to do for us by faith and future grace. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and pray and we'll be dismissed.